This week on FX Guide TV. We visit CBS Digital in Los Angeles where they just completed remastering the second season of the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. Hello and welcome to another FX Guide TV. This week we are coming to you again from LA. CBS Digital is remastering three seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation, going back to the original film reels, re-scanning and recompositing the motion control passes and effects elements. Their workflow is centred around Autodesk gear, from flare to smoke to flame to inferno. This is one of the most elaborate restorations ever, as John found out when he visited. My background's in illustration, and uh, I used to do uh, stop-motion animated movies when I was a kid, like a lot of us. I uh, got hired here at the network uh, probably about 24 years ago, and uh, saw kind of what was going on here, and uh, we got our first Macintosh back then, started to push the envelope, showing that we could do more than just kind of graphics and stuff, and you know, started doing stop motion, this, that, other things, and saw the need to maybe push it even farther. So we kind of became one of the first kind of visual effects boutiques within a network. And that happened in about 93. Now, equipment-wise, were you working just Macs, or did you actually dive into the discrete gear at the time? Yeah, well, we started off on Macs and kind of showed what we could do there. We were doing little things for Carol Burnett and stuff like that. And then we kind of looked at what we needed to get into, uh, we had a Harry here. We had one of the first Harrys, and we we're using that for a lot of the on-air graphics. But in terms of visual effects, you know, Flame came out, and we were looking at that really good, and just the flexibility of it, the fact that it wasn't a black box, and it was really attractive. So we decided to gamble and go that route, and it was one of the best decisions we made in terms of long-term uh, equipment. Now, were you just servicing in-house clients at that stage, or when did you start expanding? Yeah, we actually started off in the very beginning, uh, started off doing stuff for in-house, uh, some of the shows came to us, Touched by an Angel, some main title stuff, and we started off doing that. And then once we kind of got established, you know, we started to open up to other networks. So we almost became like a business within a business. So we're here at CBS, but we were doing work for ABC or NBC or ABC and whoever. And they don't have a problem with that, is I guess as, well, as long as you're making money? Absolutely. You know, we have you know other sitcoms on our lot. You know, it's, it's one of those kind of interesting things where people go, wow, that's kind of different. You're doing shows for other networks. But... You know, it's we. You know, CBS produces shows for other networks and vice versa. So, um, it's n not a problem. Now, more recently, there have been kind of lots of challenges, obviously facing the industry. The news of DD, of course, all yeah. that, and a lot of the artist strife. Um, how has your business adapted to that recently to be able to keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's an interesting question, and you know, the good thing is, is we've had the longevity, and I think the reason why we've been able to do that, I mean, we've always been here, we've always been actually a union shop, uh, so we've had that from the beginning, and the way we've continued to adapt is to just, I think, you know, keep a, a really good model in terms of workflow and people, and hiring people, and contracting, and expanding. The fact that we could move a lot of volume quickly and turn stuff around allowed us to bring you know, kind of more revenue in that way. And we figured it was the best way of going. And back then, you know, the desktop was still kind of slow. Rendering HD was slow. IO was slow. So it was a natural progression for us to, to start there with standard def and then migrate to high def, upgrade our boxes, and then continue to just push through it. 
And what do you have now as far? I mean, don't you have one of everything? Basically, God, kind of we do. We do. It's it's a nice thing. You know, we have. Uh, we basically started off with infernos, and and those. Became, you still actually have an inferno. We actually do, okay. believe it or not. And it kind of migrated and changed into flame. And then uh, when uh, flame premium came out, we took the opportunity to to upgrade to that. And the advantage for us was that as we got into different types of work like mastering we you know we were we got into luster and smoke and it was a nice way to kind of fill in and became kind of became a post-production house overnight you know whereas we were just doing a lot of compositing in 3d we added the color and, and editing kind of overnight with those tools so the fact that we were able to migrate to that was really helpful and then we've added flares because that's kind of a inexpensive way of getting more seats and it hooks in with our sand and our other setup so we have this really nice workflow now that we're able to move stuff around real efficiently and a lot of people that were flame artists moved to smoke and vice versa so it was a nice forum for them to be able to kind of say you know what i'd like to move into this or we had an editor that wanted to get into color learned luster he was really good and it was familiar in terms of the interface and how they worked right now what is your infrastructure you say how many what's your storage set up uh, and we, actually how many systems do you have now yeah we currently i think have about uh three flame premiums probably three standalone flames uh we have two flares we have uh, two lusters, which are part of the flame premium. We have a couple individual smokes. And it's all connected into a giant sand storage, which we kind of migrated to this year. We were pretty much working off the stones like everybody was. And then we decided to create a giant pool of storage and move to, we're currently at about like 600 uh, uh, terabytes. And we kind of partition off different artists. So we might have three flame artists on one pool of sand storage, this group over here. Uh, but it's really nice because we just move stuff around really easily. But that fits in really well with the type of work that you seem to be concentrating on. Maybe you're not, but you've really found a niche in the remastering. What's the history behind that? Yeah, you know, it was one of those things where uh, I was looking for, always looking for new opportunities or new uh, sources of revenue. I heard they were going to be remastering I Love Lucy in HD, and I'm like, gosh, we can do that, and how do we get into that? And we kind of figured out what our part might be in that, so we decided to get into... Uh, some fixes and some cleaning and stuff. So it was the, like the beginning of it all. And then when we saw where it was going, I convinced the network to get into more of that. And that led to a couple 2K film scanners. Which uh, now probably are not that expensive to have. No, it, we, we waited for the right time to do this, definitely. You know, we got in at the end of it, so it became more affordable, which was great when you're justifying a new business of the company. You know, it's not like such a high price to get in. We were able to sneak in at a lower price point for the scanners. We were able to take our flames, move to flame premium, so that added the luster and the smoke. So it was all kind of there waiting for us, and it was a natural progression. And then having all the years of experience in visual effects led to the ability to redo all the visual effects for Star Trek, which is the current you know next generation project that we're working on, which is really kind of groundbreaking in terms of what we're doing in the remastering world and the schedule at the same time. So how did that come about? I mean, with getting a job like that, the decision, for instance, to remaster that and remaster, you know, where, where does that come from? You know, I, what happens is, believe it or not, something like, you know, Star Trek Next Generation HD, you'd think would be a no-brainer, but it really took seven years to get that off the ground. And, and the reason being is this was such a unique project that everything was shot on film, transferred once, put away, and all cut and done on tape. So all the visual effects were done at standard F resolution, all the editing, all the color, everything. So there was no path back to the film you know, we couldn't just up-convert it. We really had to go back in from the ground up, almost like we were starting from day one, and rescan all the film, rescan all the visual effects passes, and rebuild it. And we came up with a way to take 
an existing scene EDL uh, kind of retransfer the dailies, uh, the film back to the dailies, upconverted, kind of rebuild the list, try, conform it that way, go back in, take the visual effects, go through all the film, rescan every pass. It's been daunting, but the most rewarding because the fan base has been so excited. Uh, we really gave them what they wanted, which is a pristine digital HD version. Well, you kind of glossed over that, but basically what you're, you kind of had to do is, and did you have to iMatch the whole thing? Is that what you're saying? Well, to some degree, yes. Um, what we had to do is we took, basically we took the dailies, the one-inch dailies, upconverted those to HD, and then in the, uh, when we did the Telesini process, we took that, found the proper dailies, uh, proper film, and relayed over exactly the upconverted one-inch. So there we had an exact match of the one-inch dailies, and then we took the actual EDL that was only existing as like a scene EDL, wrote some software to combine that into a usable list in like the smoke, load that up, now take our upconverted new one inch dailies and it basically went in there and reconformed. Of course we had to go in there and I matched certain things, but that was really kind of a unique way of doing this. And without that it would, who knows if we could have done it. Now wasn't that what about the visual effects passes? Because one really cool thing about looking at this footage is seeing all the brilliant motion control and model work that was yeah. done. Were there EDLs for that? No, there wasn't. So yeah. basically what we would have to do is we would go in there and get the VFX film. A lot of times they would do one take multiple passes. So there weren't maybe three and four versions to choose from. When they did practical elements like smoke or uh, really cool light effects, there might have been 20, 30 takes of that, and we had to go in there and really analyze and find the right one. And we had to really, by eye, sift through that and find that, almost like an effects editing, but a lot of time went into that. But in terms of like the motion control work, it was pretty much, unless they had a bad take, it was a one-off, and then there was maybe six, seven, eight passes that followed of lights, engine glows, beauty pass, matte pass. We would take that, and then we'd have to find exactly what part of that they used. So, a lot of work. So actually a question I have, and actually yeah. uh, just about any other person I've talked to, is the decision to remaster at 4x3 yeah. versus trying to redo it at 16x9. Right. What was the, pro I mean, that wasn't your decision, but what was the process, thought process sure. that? Sure, huge discussions on that. You, you know, the fan blogs just lit up. How come they're not doing 16x9? How come they're just doing 4x3? And actually in the uh, season one uh, Blu-ray disc, we go through and we talk about and give comparisons of why we made the decision to do this. Ultimately, the main decision was is we were going to have to alter the original framing to get to 16 by 9 because when they did shoot it, there were some C-stands, other things, and it would have to be a slight repo and blow up to, to remove that. There's no way we're going to be able to go in there and retouch and clean all that stuff up. There was, it would just be cost, you know, it wouldn't be, cost, it was cost prohibitive. Right. And so... Um, Ultimately, a lot of times when they shoot the motion control passes, uh, they might have a flag in the frame. So in the 16 by 9 area, the Enterprise was cut off. Or they shot it over here, and then they repoed it. So there was nothing there. So if you'll take the mask away, oops, we're missing. So it just, it wasn't technically possible. So the process is when you get back and you match everything back to dailies, work through the final workflow and the steps of getting things ready to do the effects work. Yeah, so what'll happen is we'll go up there, we'll scan, We'll get all the passes. Uh, everything comes down, gets kind of vetted and figured out what sections we need. And then it'll go to our compositors. And we currently have probably about five compositors working. We're doing about an episode a week, if you could believe that. And, um, you know, some of the workflow is once we have an established setup, you know, that shot might get library. But pretty much there's, I would say on average, 60 shots per episode right now. 
and we've had to develop some really unique things to do in terms of uh, workflow, uh, phasers. Uh, we realized that a lot of that was hand-painted and it varied from shot to shot. And we said, you know, the only way to complete this in a reasonable amount of time is to come up with some cool setups. So, you know, Tony, one of our uh, flame artists, wrote some really neat expressions that allowed us to basically go in there and alter the perspective, you know, the width of the glow and, and the way we move things around. We could move through maybe 10, 15 shots in a day. And that was all through a function of starting in the beginning and saying, okay, we got to build a really great setup for this. We could pass that to different artists. And then it's really a function of going in there and just figuring out what we want to do for that shot. And it wasn't just an expression. I mean, it took some development time. This wasn't something that was done in one day, right? No question about it. I mean, I might have made it sound easy, but it, it was months. And it was really about getting, because, you know, the fans are very particular. Uh, the consultants on this are very particular. And, you know, everything is uh, from the amount of noise running through the glow to the way the glow really looks to the, every part of it really had to be thought out. And it wasn't just a blanket approach. We knew we had to be able to go in for each shot and kind of modify. This one looked a little noisier because we really wanted to match each episode. And some episodes were different. So if it felt noisier in this episode, we kind of made it a little noisier. So we needed the tools to really go in there and really uh, be able to alter each value or what it is that made up that phaser. Right. And development time makes sense if you're going to use it however many times you do over three seasons. Worth. Yeah, because we're in this for a while and we figured, okay, let's invest up front so we'll make it easier for us down the road. What were some of the other challenges of going back to the original film and scanning again? Was there any degradation? I mean, it was in good shape, you say, but I'm sure there was stuff going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they pin red stuff back in the day. You know, we have some really great tools now for stabilizing. So we started off going with that workflow because a lot of the passes, um, you know, if you don't stabilize or pin reg it, they're going to vibrate. Uh, but beyond that, we found some warping. And so you'd get these weird things happening where the, everything, the lights are looking good, and then all of a sudden they start to separate a little bit and come back. And that was like more of an organic thing where we go, okay. So we found like little tools and ways to, to we actually have a really great guy, James, who's going in there and literally sitting on his flare and has come up with all these really cool tracking tricks and distort tricks to basically get everything to work. So that was one of the biggest challenges, finding a shot and go, oops, okay, we got to go in there and start to get that glued together better. Um, other than that, what we've had to do with the planets, you know, a lot of the planets, they start off really nice uh, with some matte paintings. And as they progress, they started to wrap some stuff around spheres, early CG, and it just, it won't hold up today. So our, we have a great Mac, uh, Mac, uh, matte painter, Max, who um, literally goes in there, he's working in Cinema 4D, and he's just doing these absolute gorgeous planets. We're taking the opportunity to kind of move the clouds differently and just do some really beautiful things that actually respect the original. And we work with the consultants, and the, the reaction is great. So, well, what about some of the, even some of the effects passes are really interesting what they did. To Absolutely. Like crazy stuff. I mean, organic chaotic stuff that you know you're going to spend a week with your particle guy and you're still going to be tweaking where you know they took light and smoke and they shot it through something and it does this interesting kind of moray and and then they would take that and distort that and use that as an element they did things where they call it the pom-pom they literally took a, a glitter a glittery pom-pom and shook it around in light and it created all these really cool organic sparkles and stuff and just all those wonderful techniques, you know, that they used back then uh, to shoot stuff that we now kind of go to kind of CG with is is really just wonderful. 
And I don't mean to imply the guys need it, but I think one of the main comments, it's almost like a compositing boot camp yes. in a way because the style of the work that you're actually doing on it. Yeah, and it really goes back to kind of the foundation of compositing and, you know, and the way you kind of build your passes together, the way you're keying things, just your, you know, the grain, the glow. I mean, a lot of that still carries for, forth into all the work we do today, but it's really, it's really the basics of, of, of going in there and really building a, a really pristine composite, you know, because uh, this is stuff that you're really staring at, you know, the ship's moving, you know, all the way, the, the way the passes are added, the stars, everything has to feel very seamless and, and integrated as one. And that's, you know, kind of a, a lot of what we're doing. Where do you see, what do you see in the future for your facility moving forward and what you're expanding into? Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, for us, we're fortunate because we do have access to a library of, of shows, you know, in terms of the mastering. So, you know, I think there's going to be more of this. Deep Space Nine, there's talk about already. And um, so we'll continue to leverage what we've learned in visual effects over the years and apply that to taking all this stuff from standard F up to HD and literally going in and rebuilding the effects and having that experience to go in there and take old stuff and make it look new again. Because in, in the case of like a Star Trek Next Generation or a Deep Space Nine, these are complicated projects. These are not, let's just go ahead and take the negative that's been conformed and spin it through and put it on tape. It's like, oh my God, you know, we're rebuilding this and we're going back and was that CG, was it a model? Is the film there? Do we have to recreate it? So these are complex projects, but what's, what makes it great is it's, it's, we're able to take those legacy shows that people love and want to continue to move forward and do that. And, you know, who knows? I don't know what the future is, 4K, you know, HDR, who knows? But I think at a point they'll want to take that and do that. Now I will let you in on a not very well kept secret. All the guys here at FX Guide are Star Trek nuts. Very Big Bang Theory next generation, if you know what I mean. But that would make me penny. Okay, whatever. Anyway. Until next time, I'm Angie Dale. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.